This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, uh, good morning, everybody. I'm Andrew, if I haven't met you yet. And... uh, I was, I was preparing for this uh, message this week, and uh, recently my kids have really gotten into this, uh, into, P- into PBS kid shows. Anybody else a fan of PBS kid shows? They're kind of the best kid shows out there. Um, and, uh, you know, on weekends, we'll, we have a little app, right, and they can pick it and they can uh, watch shows in there. There's some great new stuff on there. PBS has been on a long time. Uh, but a few uh, weeks ago now, they, uh, they were watching a show uh, in the living room, and I was in the kitchen, and I was doing dishes uh, because I'm a good person. So they were in the living room, I was in the kitchen, <laughs> I was washing the dishes, and uh, I hear this song play in the living room. <laughs> it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. Just rest in this for a minute, for just a soak it in. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor? My neighbor. Oh, my, you guys, I kid you not, I started crying when I heard it. I was, <laughs> I'm washing the dishes, and it's like, what's happening to me? I, I don't think I realized how much I missed Mr. Rogers until he snuck back into my heart through my kids. Uh, admit it, right? You got a little misty-eyed just thinking about it. Uh, and it's crazy that my kids like, they love this show now, which is, if you've, you know, if you compare it to more contemporary kid shows, it's completely, it's the opposite. It's slow, it's 
uh, kind of meandering. It's super relaxed, but, but they love it. And uh, why do we love this show so much? Even after so many years, why does it still evoke such strong emotions for us? There's a reason, right, that this documentary that they recently made uh, about Mr. Rogers has been so wildly popular. Actually, I think PBS showed it for free uh, this weekend to the whole country that we could, we could watch it. Uh, and I, he- I think, here's my theory. I think we feel like we need this show more than ever. We need to remember what does it mean to be a good neighbor. We, we, we long for that, don't we? We miss that. We're hungry for good neighbors. And here's the good news uh, about, about this. When, when Jesus described his people, the people who would come after him, who would follow him, uh, he, uh, when he said, here's how they're going to interact with the world, so not, not with each other, but with the world. How, how, when my people are in the workplace, when they're in their neighborhood, when they're in their schools, when they're in their own families, when they're with people who are very different with them, Jesus essentially said, my people will be good neighbors. And this is essentially what the parable of the Good Samaritan is. You just heard it read. It's, it's what does it mean to be a neighbor in Christ? And we've been in this series on Monday. Uh, many of you have been with us that whole time in, uh, through January. Uh, what does it look like to follow Jesus, uh, to be his apprentice on Monday? Not just, you know, on Sunday in church, but in all of life, both as individuals and where he's called us and placed us, but also as a church uh, collectively together. Uh, hence, right, the title of our series, Church, Church for Monday, all of us together. And if you've been following along in your guidebook, which I really hope that you have been, you've probably seen that uh, these seven marks of a disciple that's ready for Monday are really organized around f- our five values as a church. So we've talked about the cross, the yoke, the Bible and the church, we did that last week. And this is our first week in this value, the city. And there are actually three discipleship marks. There's three sermons and three lessons in your guidebook just on the city. How do we as followers of Jesus and as a church interact with our community? And this is not a, a new question, by the way. How do we, how, how do, as God's people, how do we interact with our society, with our world? It's not a new question. In Luke 10, a religious expert essentially asks Jesus this very same question. Jesus, who is my neighbor? In other words, Jesus, whom should I care about and when and why and how? So as we dive into this story together this morning, I want us to see this. Here's kind of the big idea. We cannot follow Jesus on Monday without being good neighbors. And good neighbors give themselves away. We cannot follow Jesus on Monday if we are not good neighbors, without being good neighbors. And good neighbors give themselves away. So if you brought your Bible, uh, electronic, paper, whatever, uh, open to Luke chapter 10. Uh, We're going to be starting in verse 25. While you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of the context for the story. We're just kind of jumping into Luke. I understand that. Let me give you a little bit of context here. So uh, a lawyer is questioning Jesus. Now, when we hear that word lawyer, we often think criminal law, civil law, uh, but at this time, what's meant here is, is a religious lawyer, a religious expert, someone whose full-time job is to study what we now call the Old Testament, to know it backwards and forwards, to understand it thoroughly. This is what this man's job is. Now, Jesus at this time in Luke is quite popular as a teacher of the law, as an interpreter of the Old Testament, but he did not come up in the farm system with the, most of the scribes and Pharisees of the day. He's an outsider. Uh, so they, they don't really like him very much, even though he's very popular. 
And so this lawyer is kind of coming up to Jesus, and Luke says he's trying to trap him or test him. Essentially, this lawyer wants to get Jesus to slip up in his answer and broadcast it to the whole world. It's a smear campaign. He wants to broadcast it to the whole world. That's, that's his intent. So the lawyer asks Jesus a really uh, popular question at the time. Uh, we actually see this in lots of different sources from this time. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, what must I do? Uh, maybe a better way of phrasing that question that, in a way that we would understand is something like, Jesus, what does it mean to live God's way? What's the God life? To live in his will. What is, what, what, what is your interpretation of the law to, to follow God in, in all of life? And uh, <clears throat> this is one of those questions that every good rabbi would have a pat answer to. It was, it was uh, a bit of a dividing line. You had to have an answer to this question. And uh, the lawyer is hoping Jesus will give him an answer that he can then pick apart in front of everyone. And this is, if you've read Jesus, you know that he, he, very, he, he never takes the bait with people. So instead of answering this guy's question, he asks him a question. He says, well, you're an expert in the law. How do you read it? What's your answer to your own question? Now, if you're the lawyer and you're hoping to trap Jesus, you've got to start feeling a little nervous right here because you see Jesus got a couple moves. <laughs> it's like, okay, maybe he's a better politician than I thought he was. But the guy actually gives a good response to Jesus. This is verse 27. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Here's why that's a pretty good answer. Jesus himself will, will say essentially the same thing in Matthew 22. This is the summary of what it means to follow God. So not bad. And Jesus here, even in this story, he acknowledges that. He says, good for you. Just do that and you'll find life. You'll live. And I can almost imagine Jesus says that. He starts turning his back, right? The conversation's over. Thanks. He starts to walk away. But the guy's not satisfied. He wanted to trap Jesus and it hasn't worked yet. So I imagine he calls out after Jesus, but Jesus, who is my neighbor? Right? Let's get even more specific here, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? And I know this isn't in the Bible, but when I picture this scene, this guy calls out, right, who is my neighbor? And I just picture Jesus turns around, he's already smiling. Like, I'm so glad you asked. You asked for this. And Jesus, what Jesus does, again, he doesn't give a direct answer to the question. He says, I, he says, I'm going to tell you a story. Let me illustrate it. And he tells this story. He says, there was a man walking from Jerusalem to Jericho who was attacked by robbers. Now, that would not, this, this, um, the beginning of the story wouldn't surprise anyone. The, the, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho um, was 17 miles long. It was basically straight downhill. Jerusalem's really high elevation. Jericho's very low. 17 miles down, so a lot of switchbacks to get down that elevation, which means there are lots of places to hide and surprise someone on the road to Jericho. And uh, it was actually such a violent road. It had such a history of, of just this kind of incident. It was, it was known as the way of blood in the ancient world. You, this was not a road you would travel alone as Jesus has this man doing. So he gets attacked. And they take everything. These robbers take everything. They strip him naked. They, they take all this stuff. They lead him completely exposed and bleeding and broken. And he's half dead, Jesus says, on the road. So, so far, a pretty depressing story. <laughs> and then it gets worse. So the next character Jesus introduces, there's a priest traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's probably just finished a day's work at the temple. This is full-time job would be priestly duties at the temple. He sees the injured man, but instead of stopping to help, he moves to the other side of the road, 
and he continues on. You got to, you know, in the midst of the story, you got to ask why. Jesus doesn't give us an answer, but I'd wager a guess that it was it was two reasons. One, right, it's dangerous to stop. What if the robbers are still here? What if this is part of the trap? Uh, who knows? Probably not as obvious, too, is that for a priest at this time to touch a dead body or even a severely injured person and to be exposed to their blood would make them ritually unclean for services in the temple for a period of time. He'd have to go through a process to become uh, clean again. And if he can't do his job, then there's no income, so there's a, a life disruption that would come from stopping to help. To stop and help would would be a tremendous risk to him personally and professionally, right? It's not worth the risk. Perhaps he even assumed this man was dead already. There's nothing I can do. Whatever the reason, he moves as far as the road will allow him to go from this person, and he moves on. The second character enters the story. This time it's a Levite, not quite as high on the social ladder as the priest, but still a very respectable job, a respectable citizen. Now the Levite, unlike the priest, as far as we know... There's no ritual impurity if he helps this person. That's not part of his job description, as far as we know. Uh, And yet, just like the priest, he moves to the far side of the road and continues on. Again, we don't exactly know why. Maybe he saw the priest do the same thing, and he thought, well, if my religious superior has chosen to do this, then I should do the same thing. I, I don't know. Jesus' overall point, I think, with these two characters, at least in part, is to show that being a religious person these are two highly religious people, does not make someone a good neighbor. It's not the same thing. uh, These were two men who knew the Bible. They worshiped Yahweh regularly on Saturday. They understood God's heart for the vulnerable because they had studied his scriptures. This theme is all over the Old Testament. And they just simply did not apply it on Monday. They're leaving their place of worship, Jerusalem, but it doesn't affect the way they treat this man on the side of the road on the way home. Unlike, notice, the hero of the story, the next character, the Samaritan. And we'll get to the importance of that title, Samaritan, in just a minute. There's a third character now. The Samaritan, who's not a religious figure, uh, but is probably out on business, he sees the man, and Jesus says, has compassion. This word compassion is a deep gut-level emotive reaction to what you see, to the plight of this man. And where the other two move to the side of the road, he moves toward him. Jesus says he he binds up the wounds, he pours on oil and, and wine. He puts the man on his own animal and walks him to a nearby inn along the way. He stays with him overnight and takes care of him through the night. And the next morning, Uh, He promises the innkeeper, uh, he says, I will pay whatever cost is incurred to take care of this man. I will be back in a few days. He leaves his credit card, right? Put it on this, and I'll be back to make sure that uh, everyone's taken care of. That's the end of the story. So Jesus tells the story. He looks this lawyer then dead in the eye, this expert in the scripture, knows the Bible backwards and forwards. He asks this final question, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer, right, who, for reasons I'll explain, he can't even say the word Samaritan. All he can say is, uh, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus says, yes, go and do likewise. 
Now, there's a lot going on in Jesus' use of the story and his answer that he gives to this lawyer. But I want to notice something with you right off the bat. When Jesus talks about being a good neighbor, he does not tell a story about Sunday. This is not a story about good old church folk. In fact, as we already saw, the bad guys in the story are almost preoccupied with Sunday. For them, it was Saturday. (laughs) I get it. But same idea. Jesus answers with a story about Monday. He says, this is what it looks like for people in their everyday lives to be good neighbors if they follow me. That's the purpose of the story. We cannot follow Jesus on Monday without being good neighbors. Jesus links these two things together. And good neighbors give themselves away. You see it immediately with the example of the Samaritan. So what do we learn from him? What does it mean to be a neighbor who gives themselves away? From, how do we, what do we learn from him? And the first and the most obvious thing, I just want to give you a couple, the rest of our time, a couple observations on that. The first and I think most obvious thing that you see from this story is that neighbors give away their prejudices. They give away their prejudices. This is a hard point for us to understand in some ways because we are so far removed from the real palpable hatred the Jews and Samaritans had for one another. It's, it's a very, it's a, that's a long ways away from us historically. And there's lots of history between these, these two ethnic groups um, that scholars have kind of unpacked. And no one's actually totally sure when the animosity and hatred developed between the two, when it started. Uh, there's a lot of debate about that, actually. Uh, but it's clear by the time Jesus tells the story, these two groups cannot stand each other. Um, there's, uh, the Jews thought of Samaritans as traitors, political traitors, as heretics, as a cult group that was misinterpreting the Old Testament. They were untrustworthy. They were unclean. To associate as a Jew with a Samaritan was worse than associating with an unclean pagan Gentile. Uh, they were even lower on the social status for the Jewish people. Uh, in fact, you can see in John chapter 8, if you turn there later, you can see that when Jesus is in a, a conversation there and he offends someone, which you'll find Jesus does uh, often, <laughs> um, they, the group that he offends comes back to him and they say, are we wrong in saying that you have a demon and you're a Samaritan? It's a byword, right? To be called a Samaritan, is a, it's, it's, a, it's a, um, an insult. That's how despised these people were. So when Jesus makes the hero, when Jesus says the good neighbor of this story is a Samaritan, I imagine the people gasped when he said that word. I also imagine the lawyer to whom he's addressing this story turns his face away in disgust. And just, he can't handle that Jesus is doing this. Now, again, we don't get that. We love this story. Like culturally, right? Even if you're not, you didn't grow up in the church, everybody knows the story. We literally have laws called Good Samaritan Laws. That's how much we love this. Yes, be a, be a Samaritan. We love it. So I'm, so I'm going to do my best to translate this for you. Um, and if it's offensive to you, I'm sorry, that's the purpose of the parable. So uh, here's, and it's all about the audience. So if Jesus were telling this, uh, parable on CNN today. His good neighbor would be someone wearing a Make America Great Again hat, and, and, t- and ratings would plummet, right? Turning off the TV. If he were on Fox News and he were telling this parable, the hero of the story would be, you know, an undocumented Central American migrant worker, and the internet would explode. And if he were telling it to you or me personally, if we were the only audience in the room, 
he would think of the most offensive kind of person that you can imagine. Right, the kind of person where if they moved in next door to you, you would immediately put your house on the market and you would leave. He would find that person. And he would say to you, go and do likewise. This is a good neighbor. Go and do likewise. Right, now the lawyer doesn't like this answer because he wants a gated community. Right? He wants people who look like him and think like him and act like him, vote like him, believe like him. But for Jesus... Neighbors give themselves away. And that includes whatever prejudice, whatever hatred, whatever history, whatever, whatever might separate people. Jesus' point is, is that when we follow him and we've put our trust in him, one of the key characteristics of that person who loves Jesus will be that anyone can be that person's neighbor. Anyone. At any time. A good neighbor gives away those prejudices and those preferences and has compassion on anyone in need. Anyone. And so as we grow in neighboring ourselves on Monday, wherever God has you, just ask yourself this week, where am I justifying a lack of compassion for a certain kind of person or a specific person? Where do you find yourself saying or feeling, I don't like that person, but it's okay because they do X or they say this or they do that or they believe this? And can you begin to ask with that person in mind, right, God, give me the love I need to be a good neighbor to that person. And maybe that means a smile, a civil conversation, a handshake, a welcome. It doesn't, I'm not talking big stuff here. Can, can we begin to ask God's help to be a good neighbor to that person? Okay? We all have that prejudice. We all have it somewhere. God, help, help me overcome it. That's number one. Number two, you see this in the story. Uh, good neighbors give away their schedule. I know that sounds really dry, but I honestly think this point is probably one of the biggest obstacles on, in our Mondays that keep us from helping people, loving people the way we probably should. Here's what I mean. You look at this story, it's easy to miss, I think, because we're so familiar with this parable. But the Samaritan, think about it, is on the road to Jericho for a reason. It doesn't just appear there. Like I said before, he's probably on some kind of business trip. And if those of you who have ever been in business or on business trips, you know that along with that come deadlines, appointments, schedules, expectations, opportunity costs, right? You're on a schedule for a reason. To stop and help this guy would not only put the Samaritan at great physical risk, but it would take days off his calendar, literally days. If you follow the story, he stops with him at the end, stays with him overnight, probably not the stop he wanted to make. He leaves and promises to come back in several days um, to make sure everything's okay. Maybe that's out of his way again. We don't know. Days off of his trip. How easy it would be to see this guy in need on the road, and as I have done, you guys, I can think of times I've done this and say to myself, you know what? I don't have time for this. I'm too busy. I got people expecting me somewhere. I can't, I can't do this. I probably can't help them anyway. And I, honestly, as I thought about it, I shudder to think about the times I've done that. But I know. I know I have. My hunch is many of us struggle with that. It's that time thing. There was actually a study done years ago 
uh, at Princeton Theological Seminary. So they, they went after, right, the, the religious teachers. And uh, here's what they did. It was a social experiment. Uh, they had seminary students uh, meet on one end of the campus, and they had an appointment at the other end of the campus. And they took half of the people. This is so mean, you guys. <laughs> they had, a, they had a, a person in need, in distress, halfway through the walk, kind of planted there. And they told half of the group, they told the control group, hey, you know, head over to there, but you, there's no deadline, just get there when you can. And they told the second group, listen, you've got an appointment right away. You need to get there as fast as you can across campus. Which group do you think was more likely to stop and help the, the person they planted along the way? In fact, what the researchers found is that more than, they, tra- they controlled for these things as best they could, more than personality or temperament, the person most likely to stop and help was the person with an open, a perceived open schedule. And one of the researchers, this line really jumped out to me. They concluded the study with this observation, our ethics become a luxury as our speed increases. And that is not good news for a fast society. To that, I would add this observation. Uh, as, te- as technology continues to make life easier and catered specifically to my needs and my wants and my preferences, I think it gets harder and harder for us to inconvenience ourselves for other people. It's just not what we're trained to do day in and day out. We're not as practiced in it as we used to be. There was actually an article recently written for Christianity Today, if you are familiar with that uh, magazine. And the title summed it up so well. It's a great article, but all you really need is the title. Move over sex and drugs, ease is the new vice. And this quote got me. This stood out to me. The author, she said, love, and I I would just add, you know, love like Jesus is showing us in this story. Love in both its everyday gestures and its grand flourishes is the radical embrace of burden, not the rejection of it. And this dynamic, right, it plays out in a million different ways on our Monday. But think about it. When is the last time that being a good neighbor or to get more specific, a good spouse, a good sibling, a good coworker, a good friend, cost us something in our, in our schedule, in our time? And maybe for you that means putting off those emails that you really feel like you have to get done to help a coworker on a project that you will not get credit for, but that's okay. Or maybe for you, you're a student, that means tutoring another student who's struggling in a subject that you grasp really well. Even though it's not going to add a ton of value to your study time, you're going to take time and help this other person, even if it's convenient. Or maybe there's a voice in your head, right? And here at the Leewood campus, we've been doing a lot of stuff around our ministry partners, these groups that we work with across our city to advance God's kingdom with their help. And maybe there's been a voice in your head, a prompting from God to be a good neighbor to the kids at the Hope Center or Cristo Rey, to be a mentor or a tutor, or to provide meals for these after-school programs, which we still need help with, by the way. And maybe that's kind of been in the back of your mind, and the reason you haven't taken a next step to even explore is you thought, I, I don't have time. There's no way I could do that. It's too inconvenient. So here's my thought. This week, let's... Let's ask God, show us where we can create margin to be a good neighbor. My hunch is there's something already in your life right now where you could apply this. Where can we create margin to be a good neighbor? Where can we give away our time? 
for the sake of our neighbor. Okay. Good neighbors give away their schedule. Here's the third thing. Uh, neighbors, good neighbors give away their money. And it's really just as obvious as that in this story. You know, think about it this way. There is a way to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan without ever mentioning money that has just as much emotional impact as with it. I'll retell it to you, right? Guy gets hurt, guy stops, helps him, drops him off, leaves, right? It's, It's the same story. I never have to mention money or possessions or it's just as emotionally effective, but Jesus doesn't do that. He goes out of his way. First, he mentions the materials needed to bind up the wounds of this injured guy, oil and wine and bandages. In the ancient world, right, you don't get that stuff at Target. This custom stuff. You order it custom. It's expensive. Then Jesus specifically mentions, right, the Samaritan gives two denarii to the innkeeper, to about two days' wages, specific amount of money. He basically buys this guy full-time service for two days, and then he promises to cover whatever additional expenses might arise, which no doubt they will. Food, water, room and board, medicine, whatever it is, he's paying for it. Money is just all over the story, and I, th- I think Jesus wants us to know as his followers, if we're to truly give ourselves away, it changes the way we use our checkbook. There's actually a... Um, a pastor who recently wrote about actually this parable and how it not only calls us to a lifestyle of compassion, but, but also a lifestyle of capacity to respond and be generous like the Samaritan. The book, if you've not read it, it's called The Economics of Neighborly Love. It's written by a guy named Tom Nelson, <laughs> who, by the way, is your pastor. There he is. He's, he's your pastor. There's this book, you guys, economics, it's a great resource that can unpack this, this theme in particular, as well as others, but this theme in particular. And uh, many of you ha- have already grabbed a copy of this book over the years, uh, but if you're here and you haven't gotten a copy of it, we're, we're, we're giving them away. They're out on the lobby table out here. If you, if you, if you haven't gotten one yet, it's, it's our gift to you. Take it. Look at it this week. But maybe your next step around this area this week is just to get a sense of where you are financially and then your priorities with money and start to build financial margin in your life to, to be generous. And you guys, your guidebook is an incredible resource in order to help you do that this week, to help you figure out what, where are my priorities in, in my finances and how can I begin to ask God's help to create margin in my life. And we offer Financial Peace University basically every year. Um, we're going to offer it again probably next year to, in order to help us build this kind of margin and think well about our resources um, So check that out. Take time this week to ask for God's help in creating margin in your financial lives to to be a good neighbor when needs arise. We can't control the timing, but we can be ready for it, just like this Samaritan was. Okay, last last thing we see. Uh, Good neighbors entrust their lives to Jesus. This is the last thing I wanted to say. They entrust their lives to Jesus. Um, I wanted this sermon to be really practical, so I've really started with what are the ways we need to emulate the Samaritan? I think that's good. We should do that. That's part of why Jesus tells the story. But Jesus also has another reason for telling the story the way that he does. And it might be the most important one or the most foundational one. And here's what I think it is. Without the love of Jesus, without the grace and forgiveness and eternal life that he offers to us, 
on the cross, we can never be good neighbors like we're supposed to be. This sermon, right, this discipleship mark, the series that we're in, is not a way to earn God's love or to earn his approval. It's an overflow of all the ways God has given himself away in Jesus for us. And the more we are able to grasp that truth, that God himself gives himself away for you and I, the better neighbors we will become. And here's where I'm getting this. Don't, don't forget that this story is a response to a man who wants to justify himself. That's the whole setup. Jesus knows that as long as that is true of this man and is true of anyone in this room, if we are here and listening to this as a means to justify ourselves by being a good person, a religious person, we will never be the neighbor we're supposed to be. We will never give ourselves away the way Jesus asked us to do. We may be as religious and smart and intellectual and understanding as this lawyer or this teacher. And we may even tithe and serve the poor and do all kinds of stuff, but we will never give ourselves away because we will only do good if it makes us look good. That is not what Jesus is saying. It's only at the end of the story, this gospel story, that we understand what Jesus has given up for us. When we can sing together to Jesus, Jesus, I give myself to you, then we can sing the chorus, I give myself away. Jesus, you've taken my life. Now I can give myself away the way you've called me to do. And it's hard to describe what a life like that looks like. So here's what I want to do. He'll be embarrassed that I'm putting it this way, but I don't, I don't care. I want you to see someone who goes to our campus who is so enraptured by the love of Jesus that he sees his whole vocation, right, his whole nine to five, his whole work life as a means to be a good neighbor. So watch this. I'm Steve Brown. And uh, we have been part of Christ's community for over 30 years. About six years ago, a good buddy of mine, uh, John Emanuels, he and his partner had asked me if, if uh, I'd be willing to come over and help set up a company for them. I had no idea how to do that, uh, but we jumped in together right after the holidays and uh, six months later, in July of 2013, launched an entity called Axiom Property Management. The thought of starting this wasn't just so much uh, for what it needed to be from an economic engine, which it is, but to do it in a way that would be God-honoring and uh, to have an opportunity to um, impact uh, the residents, uh, which the properties that we own, and um, the associates that work for us. Yeah, I think if you had asked me you know, seven years ago, uh, who to pray for at work. I might have struggled thinking through who to pray for. Well, I can rattle off a list of 40 people now that uh, we, we get together once a month uh, and pray for our associates. The properties that we take over are, uh, they're older, they've been neglected often by the owners. So all that, I think, is part of just peeling, peeling back some of the darkness too, and just in the sense of taking a property that is neglected and making it better so that the community around that property also sees a little bit of God-like as well. Last spring, I was over here 
and we'd had a, a young high school student <clears throat> commit suicide. And when I left the property, I just thought, man, this is just, there's just a lot of darkness here. And uh, I didn't know where, uh, I knew we had a campus in Shawnee. And so I reached out to the campus pastor and just wanted to know if there's any way that uh, there could be some partnership. And then took a drive to look at the campuses that we, the, the properties that we own in the Shawnee area and just to dream a little bit about what that partnership could look like. From that, uh, we made a decision uh, for the summer to, uh, to do several cookouts. We felt that uh, this would be a great way to, to make a difference at the property would be to let's start to serve some meals. There's no agenda, there's no, nothing other than we're gonna set up and serve for you and uh, have uh, a chance for you to uh, get to know us and for Christ community to come onto the, the property and begin to develop some relationships. Again, you look at the Shawnee area and you drive where we're at, I mean, there's some, you wouldn't perceive that there's needs around here. And yet behind these walls, there's lots of needs. And then now as we've uh, come to the, the point of, uh, you decide that we're gonna have a, have a physical facility for Christ community in the area, it's just a stone's throw from where the property's at. So it just was, to me, just a God moment in terms of uh, that call, what you had to share, it's like, here we go. I don't think that's just by happen chance. I'm sure God had a plan in, in directing hearts and minds in a certain way.